All right, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27, verse 11. Matthew 27, 11. Our study through the Gospel of Matthew has brought us to verse 11, where Jesus stands um, on trial before the Roman governor, Pilate. If you're using the Black Church Bibles, that can be found on page 834. Matthew 27, 11, page 834. And I'd ask the congregation once again to stand, please, for the reading of God's word. Our text today will be Matthew 27, beginning in verse 11, and I decided we'll stop down verse 26 today. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water And washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Thanks be to God for his word. Please be seated. The title of the message today is Christ Suffers to Set Us Free. Christ Suffers to Set Us Free. Last week we saw Jesus stand trial before the Jewish ruling council called the Sanhedrin. The Jewish leaders wanted Jesus dead, but if you remember, they they wanted to appear like they were following the law. So they conducted this kangaroo court in order to find uh, Jesus guilty of something deserving death. And while standing trial before the Jewish leaders, Jesus boldly testified before them that he is God in the flesh, to whom God the Father had given all authority to rule and judge mankind. Jesus was boldly testified to that, knowing it was sealing his fate before them. And so then the Jewish leaders, um, having found the sentence that they wanted, or the, the charge that they they wanted. Now they, um, 
needed to take Jesus before the, the uh, Roman rulers. See, they themselves had found they'd ruled Jesus guilty of blasphemy and therefore sentenced him to death. But the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, didn't have the authority themselves to put Jesus to death. That sentence must be handed down by the Roman courts. And so we saw at the beginning of, of chapter 27 that they were taking then Jesus to stand before the Ro- Roman governor of Judea, Pilate. They need Pilate to be the one to find Jesus guilty. And then they need Pilate to be the one to issue the, the death sentence on Jesus to have him executed. But this raises the dilemma for the Jewish leaders. What, are they, what will Pilate find Jesus guilty of? Remember that the, the chief priests here, they've convicted Jesus of blasphemy. But they know that Pilate, a Roman governor, is not... He's not going to care about their, their religious squabbles. So they need to think of some other way to convince Pilate that Jesus is guilty. And so what they decide on is, is this charge of insurrection. They want to convince Pilate that Jesus is a threat to Rome. Now we know that Pilate held his trials at the crack of dawn. So it was early morning when Jesus was first brought before Pilate who was staying at Herod's palace at that time during the Passover celebration. And so as we come now to verse 11, Matthew's account of this is kind of condensed. And so, uh, you know, we can fill in a few details from the, the parallel gospel accounts. And so as we come to verse 11, the chief priests have already been bringing their charges before Pilate. They've already been bringing their accusations against Jesus to Pilate. And we know, again, from those parallel accounts that they've, they've been um, trying to convince Pilate that Jesus is a leader of some political insurgents, that him claiming to be king of the Jews meant he was leading this revolt against Rome. Because they knew that would get Pilate's attention, right? He'll, pay att- he'll, he'll have to deal with that kind of uh, charge if that's true. So now let's begin in verse 11. That's why, Pilate, we're going to see him begin by asking Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. Kind of similar to what we saw, that affirmation he gave before the Sanhedrin last week, right? It's a, it, his answer is affirmative, yet it's somewhat qualified. It, Basically, underneath this answer, Jesus is saying, Yes, Pilate, I am the king of the Jews, but not in the way you think, not in the way they are trying to portray. I'm not leading some revolt against Rome. Because what many failed to understand is that Jesus did not come to to try to deliver his people from Rome. Rather, he came to set them free from their greater enemy of sin, death, and Satan. That's an enemy that we all face, isn't it? Sin and death. And Satan himself, the enemy of our souls. John 18 at this point records Jesus telling Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. You see, Jesus was inaugurating a kingdom, but not one that would take over Rome. He was inaugurating a kingdom where he reigned at the Father's right hand in heaven. Not from Caesar's throne. Again, Jesus is not leading some political revolution here. And so at this point, it's, it's, we're gonna, throughout the text, we're going to see this back and forth with Pilate and, and the, the Jewish leaders. 
Because keep in mind, Pilate's no dummy, right? I mean, he's a seasoned political figure. He perceives here that Jesus is not really a threat to Rome. He knows, as we'll read later, that the Jewish leaders are just, don't like Jesus. They're jealous of Jesus. They're jealous of his influence. And so we learn from Luke's account that Pilate at this point says, I find no guilt in this man. But then again, Luke tells us that the, 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 the Jewish leaders then at that point double down on their accusations. They, they're urgently con- trying to convince Pilate that Jesus is stirring people up, not just in Jerusalem, but in all of Judea. So they're, they're fervently trying to show that Jesus is a, a threat, a serious threat to Rome. That brings us then to verse 12. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. So again, they're bringing all these accusations against him. And, and just like we saw Jesus do, for the most part, throughout the trial before the Sanhedrin, Jesus remains silent. And this, this has um, Pilate baffled. Right? Look at verse 13. Then Pilate said to him, said to Jesus, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Verse 14, but he, Jesus, gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed, right? Pilate's amazed at Jesus' silence. Normally, a prisoner in Jesus' shoes who's on trial for his very life would be very vocal. He'd be trying to refute every accusation. He'd be trying to make a case for his innocence. He'd be trying to defend himself, trying to preserve his own life. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus is silent, Though he is innocent, though Jesus could have instantly proven to everyone that he is God in the flesh, though he could have easily freed himself, Jesus remains there bound and silent before his accusers. And again, we say, why? Why is he doing that? Well, as I mentioned last week, and I I believe even read for us, Jesus is displaying, he's fulfilling scripture, (laughs) He's displaying the, the, the silence of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, 7. And what we need to understand is this is not a, a silence of defeat. It's certainly not a silence of fear. This is rather a silence of surrender to God's will. It's a silence of obedience. Jesus' silence shows that he has submitted to his Father's will. He has embraced the, the plan that the triune God formed before the foundation of the world, that the Son would give his life to redeem his people. And so Jesus is silent, and, and, and Pilate's amazed. Now at this point, again, Pilate, he, he suspects Jesus' innocence, right? And he really should have dismissed the case. But the Jewish leaders are not going to give up here. And Pilate knows that. They keep insisting that Jesus is a political threat against Rome. And so Pilate has a dilemma. He has a problem on his hands. Though he believes Jesus is innocent, and though he is in in this position of authority to make that ruling, he knows that if he declares Jesus innocent and releases Jesus, then these Jewish leaders are going to cause him a lot of problems. Right? And he knows these Jewish leaders hold great influence over the crowds, as we're going to see. And 
again, even though Rome's in charge, they, they, could, they could get organized, they could form an official complaint and take it back to, to, to Rome. And there, there's cases in history where that didn't go well for governors, right? So, I mean, Pilate could be recalled if, if, if there was enough uh, uprising against him. Pilate can't have Rome here that he is letting the masses get out of control or that he's being unfair to them. So he is in a dilemma, but Pilate has an idea of how he can get out of this. Matthew gives us then the necessary background information in verse 15. Look look there with me at verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Remember, they're right in the midst of the Passover celebration, right? This is Friday morning. And there was a custom that every year at Passover time, the governor would pardon the sentence of a criminal whom the crowd asked for. I guess it was a nice way of kind of just throwing them a bone, right? You know, keeping in the good graces of the masses there. So verse 16 then introduces us to someone that Rome already had in custody, a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. And again, Luke gives us a little more information telling us that Barabbas had been imprisoned, get this, for starting an insurrection in the city and for murder. So it's kind of interesting, isn't it? It's kind of ironic. Barabbas was guilty of doing what the religious leaders are accusing Jesus of falsely, right? Barabbas is the one who had organized something to try to overthrow Rome. He's the one who had tried to start an insurrection, And unlike Jesus, Barabbas is guilty. He's a condemned criminal. He's already in prison, awaiting his execution. Awaiting his crucifixion, no doubt. In verse 17, then, the crowd gathers to ask Pilate to release a prisoner to them according to the custom. Look at verse 17. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, the crowd, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas? Or Jesus, who is called Christ, for he knew that it was out of envy they had delivered him up. See, remember, Pilate thinks this is his way out, right? He sees that Jesus is innocent of these charges. He knows that Jesus is no real threat to Rome. He knows that the Jewish leaders are just jealous of Jesus' popularity and influence. And so he says, oh, I'll use this Passover custom. This gives me the perfect out, Pilate's thinking, right? I... I can release Jesus without having to declare him innocent, right? So there won't be squabbles over if he's guilty. It's just I'm releasing him under the umbrella of this Passover custom. This will be perfect. So Pilate tells the crowd to choose between Barabbas and Jesus. Apparently, Pilate believes that the crowd is going to choose Jesus, right? I mean, after all, he's no doubt heard how how popular Jesus is among many of the Jews, It was just a few days earlier, by the way, that Jesus came in on Palm Sunday, right? Into Jerusalem with much fanfare. So Pilate's no doubt heard about this. So he thinks this is his out. And and Matthew uniquely gives us one more little tidbit here. Not only does Pilate himself suspect Jesus' innocence, but look at verse 19. Besides... While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. 
So that morning, while Pilate's already at work, apparently, his wife had a dream about Jesus. And we don't know the details of that dream, but clearly it left her convinced of Jesus' innocence. Notice she calls him that righteous man. What a contrast, right? Between Barabbas and Jesus. By the way, in the ancient world, dreams were commonly regarded as a means of divine guidance. So I think Pilate probably wasn't dismissive of this dream. And so between his wife's dream and his own conclusions, Pilate believes that Jesus is innocent, so he wants to release Jesus. So he's put it before the crowd. All they need to do is simply ask for Jesus to be released and and everything will, will work out fine, right? Imagine how the chief priests are thinking at this point. Remember, they've brought... They need Pilate's conviction. They brought Jesus before Pilate. They can't themselves, uh, under the law, execute Jesus. But they want Jesus dead. And, and they thought all they had to do was convince Pilate. But now he's, now he's thrown this curveball at him by saying, Oh, well, do you want me to release Jesus to you? And so now it, it, it's kind of slipped a little bit out of the Jewish leader's control, right? Now he's asked the crowd, do you want me to release Jesus to you? So the Jewish leaders spring into action at this point, right? We can't let Pilate ruin this. If the crowd chooses Jesus, our entire plan is, is, is wrecked. So verse 20 says, now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. You can just picture the Jewish leaders then fanning out into the crowd, stirring them up by, with all kinds of lies about Jesus. That Jesus, he's an imposter. He's, he's not the real Messiah. He's trying to change our Jewish ways. He breaks the Sabbath. He's a blasphemer. Remember he said he would destroy the temple. Right? Just stirring up the crowd, egging them on, getting a riot going. And no doubt these Jewish officials were persuasive. Remember, they, they are the authority among the Jews, so they're wielding that authority to influence the masses. In verse 21, then, Pilate asked the crowd for their decision. He again, the governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Barabbas. The chief priests have successfully persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas. And we're going to see the crowd just really um, not only ask for Barabbas, but vehemently hating Jesus and calling for his crucifixion. And, and sometimes that causes people to, to, to question, like, what's up with this crowd, right? How did they, uh, in, in their minds, they might, you might, people might ask, how did they turn so quickly on Jesus? And what... The reason they ask that is they look at Palm Sunday and they look at Jesus coming in to, to, to the Jewish people waving palm, palm branch, branches and shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, right? They're so excited that Jesus is, the, is here and that he is the Messiah. How did they turn on him so quickly? Well, what we need to understand is it's very likely two different crowds, the people who were cheering on Jesus there on Palm Sunday as he first came into Jerusalem were mostly made up of fellow Galilean pilgrims, right? So they were the people from Galilee that, 
were traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So they've got to witness Jesus a lot more. I mean, he's kind of a hometown guy for them, right? And they've, they've seen and heard about much of his ministry. Whereas this crowd that's standing before Pilate here on Friday morning is probably mostly local Jews. So they wouldn't have maybe, for one, been as familiar with Jesus' ministry. For two, they probably were a lot more familiar with Barabbas, right? Um, there's some evidence that that's probably why who they originally had in mind that morning as they were coming to Pilate. That's who they wanted to ask for. And in addition to that, it's certainly possible that the Sanhedrin had rallied many people. Remember how they've been just busy, busy, busy trying to get all this happening, right? You know, throwing together this, this court. And they had probably rallied many people that morning who were sympathetic to their position against Jesus. So when you factor all that together, it's not hard to picture how the religious leaders were able to easily persuade the crowd against Jesus to ask for Barabbas. And that's exactly what they've done. So here, Pilate's plan to release Jesus the easy way has failed, hasn't it? Right? The crowd has asked for Barabbas to be released. So look at verse 22 then. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? Isn't that interesting? Here's, here's a Roman governor, right? And you, it's almost like you can hear Pilate trying to bring the crowd to its senses a little bit. What shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? In other words, what shall I do with Jesus who many believe to be your Jewish king? They all said, let him be crucified. Verse 23, and he said, why? What evil has he done? Crucifixion was the cruelest form of execution. Crucifixion was only reserved for the worst of criminals. It was such a dreadful penalty that, the Roman, uh, that uh, Roman, Rome would not crucify anyone who was a Roman citizen. So you see, the crowd doesn't just want Jesus punished. They don't just want him killed. They want Jesus to suffer a humiliating and torturous death. But Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent. Pilate sees no evidence that Jesus has done anything deserving death. And again, at this point, Luke tells us that Pilate tries, tries another tactic here. He says, hey, let me just punish him and release, release him. You know, why, why don't I just give him a good beating, kind of as a warning. Hopefully that'll placate you guys, and, and then I'll release him. Pilate suggests that at this point. Verse 23, but they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. You see, the crowd will not be dissuaded. They just keep crying out over and over for Jesus to be crucified. Again, this is an angry mob at this point. And so Pilate sees there's no reasoning with this crowd. They're, they're, out, they're irrational. They're out for blood. They're not going to be satisfied until Jesus is crucified. So Pilate realizes it's no use. He's not going to be able to change the crowd's mind. Now, what should Pilate have done, right? I mean, he's still the authority here, right? He's still responsible. Oftentimes doing the right thing is not the easy thing, is it? Pilate could have still put his foot down. He could have still ruled Jesus to be innocent. He could have still set Jesus free. But he knows if he does that, he very likely will have a riot on his hands. And again, that will not look good 
in Rome's eyes. So with the crowd in a frenzy here, yelling for Jesus to be crucified, Pilate makes this fateful decision in verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. So you see, Pilate gave in to the the unrelenting pressure from the Jewish leaders to crucify Jesus. Pilate knows this is unjust. He knows that justice is not being done, that this man Jesus is being murdered, an innocent man is being murdered. And so he says, and he washes his hands as a symbolic gesture to say that he's innocent of this unjust act, as if he could make himself innocent. Again, he's not innocent. It was his responsibility He should have set Jesus free, but he's being a coward at this point. But nevertheless, that's what he said. Hey, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And then in a chilling verse, look at verse 25. I think Matthew's the only one that has this, this nugget, which is interesting as his gospel is written primarily to Jews, right? And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. See, the crowd takes responsibility for the condemnation and execution of Jesus. Clearly, they believe that Jesus is guilty. After all, their religious leaders had brought these charges against Jesus. The religious leaders had turned Jesus over to the Roman authorities The crowd no doubt trusted their chief priests and the rest of the Sanhedrin that, hey, if anybody should know if Jesus is guilty, if anybody should know if Jesus is is an imposter or a blasphemer, it should be our religious leaders. Nevertheless, we, we know and we see and we saw from our scripture reading today that the crowds are sinning. The crowds are sinning at this point. They, like the religious leaders, are rejecting Jesus, the Son of God. As Peter will later proclaim to them in Acts 3, verse 13. Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Wow, what, what charges, right? What, do we see what's taking place here in Matthew 27? They're denying the holy and righteous one. They're denying God in the flesh. Jesus, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, who had come full of grace and truth, who had shown such love such compassion to those in need who had, who had faithfully brought God's word, proclaimed the coming kingdom of God, explained and, and, and uh, modeled the values of the kingdom. He had perfectly revealed God to them. He had humbled himself to dwell among them. And yet they rejected and denied this holy and righteous one. They rejected the, their creator, God, who had come to save them. And people do the same thing today. And I wonder, are there any in this room who are doing that today? Rejecting Jesus. Rejecting their creator. 
who though they've scorned and turned and and lived for themselves, he has provided a way for you to be saved and reconciled to him. Yet you continue to reject him. You see, by nature, we're all like this crowd. And so Pilate, to protect his own interests, to, to just try to satisfy this mob of, of Jews, he gives in to their demands. Verse 26, then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. And so again, we see, even in this, this verse 26, Jesus and Barabbas intertwined here, them, them put next to each other, paralleled. You have Jesus, this innocent man, he's handed over to soldiers to be scourged, to be flogged, and to be crucified. While Barabbas, who is guilty, he's released and gets to go free. I mean, if any of us would see this on, on TV today, right, we would be, we would be adamant. We'd be upset. We'd say, this is not right. This is not just. Jesus is innocent. He doesn't deserve to die. He's done nothing wrong. Barabbas should not be going free. Right? Barabbas is the guilty one. And again, I'm just, I'm I'm fascinated by how their lives intersect at this point. And imagine if you're able to see what, over the next few minutes, the different circumstances that each of them face, right? Barabbas, his cell door is flung open while, while instead Jesus is thrown to the ground and amidst the mockings and the cheers. And, and Barabbas's shackles are unlocked while Jesus' hands are tied to that post for the scourging. Barabbas scurries out of the prison while Jesus is being scourged again and again, leaving his back shredded. Barabbas gets to, um, he gets received by the crowd, no doubt, to cheers, to hugs, whereas Jesus is having the crowd just cheering his, his torture, yelling at him, spitting at him, calling him names. Barabbas gets to hurry home to his family while Jesus is led to Golgotha. In the next several verses, carrying his cross. A cross, no doubt, that I think was, had been arranged for Barabbas. Right? When we're going to see Jesus um, crucified among two thieves, that word actually can mean insurrectionists. I think that was no, very likely Barabbas' crew there. And Jesus is literally being crucified on the cross that was intended for Barabbas. What a picture of the gospel, isn't it? I mean, do, do you see yourself in this account? Do you see yourself in this story? We are all like Barabbas today. By nature, we are the guilty ones. We are the ones who have broken God's law. We are the ones who have rebelled against our Creator's loving rule. We are the ones who are condemned, who stand condemned. We're guilty. 
We're the ones who are imprisoned by our sin. We are the ones who are headed toward a punishment we deserve. A punishment the Bible says is eternal. But Jesus Christ died in our place. Though he was sinless, Christ was counted guilty so that we could be counted righteous. Jesus willingly bore our sin. He willingly bore our punishment. He willingly suffered the, the wrath of the Father in our place. A great verse that um, just encapsulates and summarizes the gospel is 1 Peter 3.18. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's why we say Christ's death was a substitutionary atonement. By dying in our place, Jesus atoned for our sin, making us right with God. And so, just like the title of the sermon says, Christ suffers to set us free. Now because of Christ, because of his payment, because of his suffering, we have been set free. We have new life. We're at peace with God. We have eternal life. We're free from sin's ruling power. We're clothed in the righteousness of of Christ. We're loved and adopted by God. We're even made co-heirs with Christ and promised to share in his resurrection and to share in his rule forever. Christ has suffered to set us free, loved ones. That's the good news of the gospel. And as I proclaim that, and as I want that to be such an encouragement to those who are in Christ today, I wonder if there are any listening today who are not free. Right? I'm saying Christ suffered to set us free. But not all are free. Many are still in bondage to sin's ruling power. Many are still headed for an eternity apart from Christ. You're still in in bondage to sin's penalty. Ask yourself, do you have today the peace of knowing that you are forgiven by God? Do you know that? Do you have that peace? Do you know today That you are rescued from hell. If not, I urge you to do what the Bible says. To admit you are a sinner. Admit that you need a Savior. That you need Jesus to save you. And then turn from your sins. And place your faith in Christ's finished work on the cross. By doing that, you're acknowledging, Jesus, you are Lord. I want to live for you. I no longer want to live for myself. I'm no longer going to stubbornly ignore your word. By your help, by your enabling, I'm going to live for you. You are Lord. The Bible promises that everyone who does that is immediately set free. Your sins are forgiven. You're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. All who come to Jesus in repentance and faith are set free and given new life. The Holy Spirit indwells you. You're made a new creation. 
You're given a new heart that loves the Lord. And you're, you're promised that you'll one day be raised with him and be with him forever. So again, if, if any of you have not called out to Jesus, please do that today. I want you to know that you're free. I want you to have the peace that passes all understanding. The peace of knowing that God, your creator, is your heavenly father. And if I can be any help to you, please talk to me after the service. I'd love to pray with you, share more about that. I close today again by just um, reminding us what a picture we have of the gospel. We're like Barabbas, we can, we can say, Christ died in my place. Christ suffered to set me free. He died and rose again so that I could be saved. And so as you rejoice in that, what, what love and gratitude I, I trust is filling your heart for Christ. What I, I pray that it's encouraging you. I pray that joy and peace is flooding your soul. Just know, even as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, that you are no longer condemned. That by grace you've been justified through faith in Christ. And so now walk in that freedom. Live in that peace. Live in that freedom of the gospel today. Amen. Like I mentioned, um, we have the, the added blessing today of, of um, having a physical reminder. Right? The word has brought us this reminder of the gospel as we look at the life of Barabbas and, and Christ. But yet today we also have a physical reminder that Christ suffered to set us free. The bread and the cup that we're about to take remind us that Christ died on the cross in our place in order to secure our salvation. The bread symbolizes his body that was broken for us and the blood symbolizes his blood that was shed for us. It reminds us that we st- on our own we stood condemned before God because of our sin and our rebellion. That we were sinners by nature and by choice. And that sin left us separated from God and headed for eternal judgment. But again, Christ has set us free by dying in our place. He has taken our punishment. He's brought us forgiveness. So I hope you leave here today just so encouraged. As you take the bread and the cup, just know that now you've been set free. Now you're reconciled to God. Now you can serve him in that freedom and in love and in holiness because of Christ. So if I could have the, the men come forward who are going to wait on us today. As the elements are passed, by, uh, passed around, just, um, again, be reminded of the gospel. May this be a time where you personally reflect on what Christ has done for you. May your heart be encouraged that Christ has set you free. May you be filled with joy, knowing that you are forgiven and loved by God. May your heart fill with praise for your God and Savior. And the Bible also tells us that the Lord's Supper is is for believers only. It's open for any who have trusted in Christ, who are following him as their Lord. But it is only for the family of God. And so if you're not a Christian today, please just let the, the cup pass by. The bread and the cup are stacked on one another. Just let it pass by. Um, 
and just think on the gospel today. I think we'll, uh, the men will pass it out in just a moment and we'll have a moment of personal uh, time to reflect and then I'll pray.